up, uh, I had a favorite film when I was a teenager, and it was called Ever After. Did anybody ever watch that movie? Ever After. Okay, it's a classic Cinderella story um, set in the backdrop of French history. It stars Drew Barrymore and a number of other famous actors uh, with period costumes and accents and great locations. There are stepsisters to hate and an evil stepmother to overcome and an ugly tyrant to fight against and even an appearance from Leonardo da Vinci. So one of my favorite scenes in this movie is when Danielle is out in the orchard picking apples when she comes across a supposed thief. And you can watch that clip now. suggest otherwise <laughs> and for that I know I must die uh, then uh, then speak of this to no one and uh, and I shall be lenient so Danielle says I did not see you she didn't recognize the king she didn't recognize the king so in Mark 14 we're taken to the scene of a feast in Bethany And Bethany is about two miles outside the city of Jerusalem, and it was the place where Jesus stayed during the week leading up to his crucifixion. Jesus already had ridden on a a donkey into Jerusalem and was looking toward what he knew was ahead of him, his arrest, his crucifixion, his death, and his resurrection. It also was the time for Passover, and the city was becoming crowded. There was always more and more visitors coming into the city. Actually, scholars estimate that the city that was normally 50,000 people was now would grow to about 250,000 to 300,000 people during the time of Passover. So maybe Jesus wanted to avoid the crowds, or maybe he just liked the countryside, or maybe he just liked hanging out with friends uh, and having a meal before he knew what was to come. Uh, But whatever the reason, he chose to stay in Bethany during that week, and every day in the morning he would travel the two miles into the city. So we find this scene in Bethany. Jesus and his disciples and probably others are reclining at the table, which is, you know, how you sat in those days. You just kind of, you know, relax around the table in the home of Simon the leper. We don't know much about Simon uh, the leper. It seems to be his nickname. And Mark uh, wrote his name like readers knew who he was. It was mostly likely someone that Jesus had healed of leprosy. Now, I don't know if I would have liked that nickname, you know. Uh, Hey, you know, Simon? No, not that Simon. Simon the leper. Oh, that Simon. You know, or... um, you know, wouldn't it be cool to have a nickname of uh, tied to one of your illnesses that you used to have but no longer had? You know, like, no, not that Dave. You know, Dave the coffer 
or uh, Phil, you know, Phil, no, not that Phil, Phil the limper, or, uh, you know, Bertha, Bertha the bleeder, you know her. Or maybe your nickname was even what you were before you were saved, you know, like Fred the liar, or Jean the gossip, or Peter the adulterer. Just to remind you of what God had done in your life. That you were once were in sin, and now you were new. Now you were forgiven. Now you were healed. That nickname for Simon must have been such a reminder of who God was. Because no longer was Simon the leper, a lonely, diseased outcast from society, but now he was healed. He was surrounded by people in his own home, healthy and enjoying a feast together. I love how Jesus transforms lives like that. So there they all were eating and talking when a woman comes in with an alabaster jar of perfume. And it's in this moment that, and what she chooses to do with this little bottle of perfume that we discover three reactions to Jesus. We're going to look at the contrast in this story of how we respond to Jesus as king. So first let's look at Judas. What is Judas's reaction to Jesus? We already know in verses 1 and 2 that the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to find a way to arrest Jesus. It was crowded in the cities with thousands of extra visitors, so it was hard to locate him and identify who he was. John 11 actually tells us that they stood, the the chief priests and and the teachers of the law would stand in the temple courts and look out for him, looking for Jesus, thinking surely he would come to the Passover festival, and, but they couldn't see him or they couldn't find him in all of the people. In John 11.57, we read that the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. They got out word that they were looking for Jesus. So they were looking for snitches. They were looking for informants. They were basically putting out a wanted poster for Jesus. So there's this whole other dark side behind, uh, scene, behind the scenes thing happening at the time of the meal at Simon the leper's house. The woman comes out with the perfume and anoints Jesus. And here's Judas's reaction. He seeks out the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They promise him money, and he promises to look for an opportunity to hand him over. Judas didn't get it. He didn't recognize who Jesus said he was. He didn't see Jesus as king and savior, and he was probably thinking, this whole thing is going to go south, and so I'm going to look out for number one. I'm going to look out for me. I'll just get on the good side of the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and I can make some money on top of it. Matthew 6, 24 says, no one can serve two masters. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot serve both God and money. Judas didn't recognize Jesus as king. He didn't see Jesus for who he really was. He didn't see Jesus as his king, as his master. Money was his master. And his selfishness caused his downfall. How am I like that? How are you like that? Do you see Jesus for who he really is? Or is your heart so hardened 
because of the cares of this world is so hardened toward God because you have been looking out for number one and your motivation is always self-centered, always self-motivated, always self-seeking. Is your love of money or power or climbing the social ladder more important than worshiping the king of kings? Has Satan blinded you to who Jesus really is? And you need to ask God to help you see. Who likes uh, shopping at thrift stores? Anybody? Thrift stores, yes. Okay, this is like Salvation Army, you know, Plato's Closet, Value Village, yes. I always go there. Anyway, I used to volunteer for Salvation Army, and I would go through all the stuff that people had donated and like sort it out into where it goes in the store. Um, And have you ever met those people that are like pack rats and they don't want to throw anything out? And... uh, so because they don't want to throw it out, they donate it. <laughs> there, you know, there's always some good stuff in there, uh, in the boxes. Sometimes you can find really good stuff, good brand names or good makes for a really low price. But sometimes you think, why did they donate this? You know, it's stained, it's ripped, there's holes in it, there's, it's rusted, it's broken. Uh, one time I found a whole bunch of kids' craft projects in a bag that was donated with clothes and everything, like just craft projects with like, like popsicle sticks and feathers and glue and glitter and everything. And it was just like in a bag donated to the Salvation Army. They just couldn't throw it out. Most of the time you find good stuff in those donation boxes, uh, but not the best stuff. The best stuff you don't put in the box. You sell it on Kijiji, or you give it to a friend, or you give it to a family member. You usually save the best stuff for someone or something important and don't waste it on the donation box. Because you know your son will just love these dishes when he's going off to college. I mean, you're still doing good, right? You're still getting or giving good things, but maybe not the best things. Maybe not the best things. Let's look at the disciples in this passage. So the woman comes around to Jesus reclining at the table and she anoints him with perfume and this is the disciples' reaction in verse four. In verse four it says, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. So here's the thing. This perfume was expensive. It cost 300 denarii. It was about one denarii for a day's worth of work, and so it was about a year's wages. It was pure nard, and nard is an oil extracted from a root native to India. So they're in Jerusalem. India's kind of far, right? So it's super expensive, and it was most likely a family heirloom passed from mother to daughter throughout the generations. It's a family heirloom. So the disciples' reaction was valid. Why this waste? We could use it to help the poor, And helping the poor was a good thing, right? I mean, actually, around the time of Passover, it was natural for the disciples to be thinking this way of helping the poor because it was customary to give gifts on the evening of Passover to the poor, just like we make extra efforts at Christmas time to help the poor. So I totally understand what the disciples were thinking and where their hearts were in a good place of helping others. This was good, but it wasn't the best. Jesus actually told them off for rebuking her. Jesus said in verse 6, Leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you. 
and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. You see, the disciples still really didn't recognize Jesus as king or understand fully of what he had to do. They were his followers. They were doing good. They were helping people. They were serving Jesus. They were learning from him and seeing some incredible things like healing and miracles and forgiveness of sin, but they still didn't see him as king and savior. It seems like the eyes of their heart hadn't fully grasped the awesomeness of having Jesus, the actual son of God with them. I mean, they had seen him do incredible things. They saw the power of God. They'd seen deliverance and healing. They'd heard him teach and saw him fulfill prophecies from the Old Testament scriptures, but they still didn't fully comprehend that the king of kings was with them. You see, when you really understand who Jesus is, what he has done on the cross, how he has saved you from death, how he has given his life for yours, how he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, there is no other response but to pour out your worship to him, to pour out your song, to pour out your praise to him. You hold out your possessions and you say, here, Lord, they are yours. You pour out your life as an offering to him. He is everything. He is everything. And when you come to realize that, the natural response is to give everything to him. The best is to be wholly devoted to the king and to worship him. The woman poured out an extravagant offering to Jesus. She didn't hold anything back. She didn't use the olive oil that was normally used and was everywhere you could get to anoint the guest. No. In verse 8, it says she did what she could. What she had, she used for the king. It was her best. It was everything. When we give Jesus our hearts and our desires, our everything, it's out of that love for God and in response to his mercy and love that we do the good things. It's out of a response to his love and mercy that we do the good things. While Dan and I and the family were on Logos Hope, uh, we often had get-togethers with Canadians on board. There were usually between 12 and 20 Canadians, depending on the year, and we got together to celebrate different holidays, like Christmas or Thanksgiving or Canada Day, uh, or we get together for a pancake breakfast. Now, maple syrup is not easy to find in Southeast Asia, okay? I have looked, okay? <laughs> so we would rely on our supplies from home. And uh, the, so if you were to send, so we would get things from home. We get packages every four months, okay? So you'd send a package from here to Germany. That's where our office was. They'd have a shipping container. They'd wait till the shipping container was full of packages, and then they would ship it to the, wherever the ship was, okay? So it was in Southeast Asia at the time. So it would be every four months or so. So when we got together, we would hang up our Canadian flag, and we would wear hockey jerseys, and we'd wear red and white, and we'd bring all our contraband items together to share. And, you know, somehow, someone would have Tim Horton's coffee, and, you know, someone would have a red-green video that we would watch, someone with Smarties, or, and someone would always have real maple syrup. I even remember one of our first Christmases on board that we received a big jug of Craven Farm maple syrup, okay? It even said Craven Farm on it. It was very exciting. 
Anyway, this big one too, it was awesome. Okay, so we were like, like maple syrup was like gold, okay, on the ship, like gold. So it was vanilla, but that's like another story. So we're going with maple syrup right now. Okay, uh, they used to have this Dutch stuff. Instead of maple syrup, you'd have this Dutch stuff. I don't know, Ralph, if you like this stuff. Strop, do you like that stuff? Oh, it's horrible. Anyway, <laughs> it's like this black like thick, almost salty kind of stuff that you put on your maple, on your pancakes. But then they upgraded it for the Americans to Aunt Jemima's, you see. And so that was better, but it wasn't the real stuff. So we would get together, we'd bring all our loot, and we would share it with each other just to remind ourselves of home and to feel a little closer to our families who are literally on the other side of the world and remind us of our great native land, Oh, Canada. We would have started singing. It was so patriotic. Anyways, when that bottle or can of maple syrup got to the table, you knew there was no going back. People would not stop at just putting it on their pancakes. They would put it in their coffee. They would put it on their bacon. They'd put it on their sausage. They would, like, just put it on their plate and lick it off. There would be, like, no going back. There was no, like, little drizzles, okay? It was just, like, pouring on. The liquid gold, gold full of sugary maple goodness would be poured out on those pancakes, even sampled to non-Canadians, just to rub it in their faces of how great our national product was. When I decided to bring that jug of syrup that morning to the dining room, it was an offering. I had waited four months for this maple syrup from a friend or family member who was kind enough to buy it and send it to us, and I would bring it to the dining room table because I knew it would be used up in one breakfast. Let's look at our last response to Jesus. Let's look at the woman. Now I can tell you who she actually was. In the account of the same story in John 12, we find out that this woman is actually Mary. She's a sister of Martha. You know, Martha and Mary, and Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet, and Martha's all busy. Say Mary. Mary. And, uh, and the sister of Lazarus, and Lazarus is the one that Jesus was uh, raised from the dead. Okay, so that's that Mary. So let's go back to the scene. Jesus is there reclining at the table with the others, and Mary comes out with her alabaster flask full of pure nard perfume. Alabaster is a kind of mineral, like a soft stone that be- can be carved into little jars or flasks. And it was sealed, and the neck of the flask needed to be broken in order to use it. It was a one-time application. Anointing was a common custom in those days for the honored guest at a feast. But it was also used to signify God's holiness or being set apart for God. In the Old Testament, they anointed the pillars and furniture of the temple. They anointed shields. They anointed priests and prophets for God's service. And they anointed kings. So when Mary came out with the perfume, broke off the neck, and poured it out on Jesus, the meaning wasn't lost on him. You see, every king in Judah was anointed before his coronation, and this was Jesus's anointing, not by a prophet, but by a woman. I love how Jesus smashes cultural norms. He was anointed by a woman in the house of a man that used to have leprosy. Crazy. He accepted this outpouring of love and of sacrifice. Mary understood who Jesus was. He was the king. 
the king who would need to die to make a way for us to be in his kingdom. Remember as we read in Mark 10, 45, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Mary understood that Jesus would die. He would give his life as a ransom for many. Not only was she anoint, the, was anointing used for setting apart kings, but anointing was also used in prep, preparation for burial after someone had died. Mary understood who Jesus was and what he was going to do. He was the savior of the world. In verse 8, it says, She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Jesus understood what she was doing. She was doing what she could for her king. She couldn't help him in what was coming next, but she could pour out an offering to him. I imagine that she poured out the oil on his head, and then it ran down over his whole body down to his feet, and the whole fragrance filled the room. Jesus knew what was coming, and even he knew it would be a criminal's death. You see, in a criminal's death, there was no anointing of the body. So she was anointing his body for burial. So Jesus knew that he would die a criminal's death because he said she was anointing my body for burial. Something else that stands out to me, in verse 9 it says, Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Now we know gospel, translated from Greek, is the good news or the good story. Now in a good story, the king just doesn't live and then die a horrible death, right? In a good story, in the good news, he comes back to life, right? And he's resurrected. So Jesus is assuring them of his resurrection when he says her story will be told in memory of her wherever the gospel is preached, He's also saying that the gospel, which is the story of his life, his death, and his resurrection of Jesus, will be preached throughout the world. He's saying that this good news is going to spread. Even before anything happens, even before he dies and is resurrected, he says this will spread, this good news will spread. Amazing. I just love how Jesus gives a glimpse of the whole picture to his disciples. I'd like to invite the worship team to come up and we're going to prepare um, our hearts. Um, as I ask these questions, I want you to think and reflect on who you are this morning. Do you recognize the king? How do you respond to the king, to King Jesus? Do you even recognize him? Or is your heart hard toward God? Have you been caught up in living this life and the things of this world that you have been blinded to who Jesus really is? Ask the Lord to help you see. Are you like the disciples who have good intentions and want to be a good person but don't completely understand the best God has for us in Jesus Christ? That through knowing Jesus as your king, the king of your life, it transforms you from the inside out. And it's his love that flows out of you to those around you. Or are you like Mary? Do you recognize your king and your savior 
and you respond by worshiping him, pouring out an offering of praise to him. Like a sweet-smelling fragrance, you hold nothing back, but you give everything that you have to him. Let's take a moment with our heads bowed and eyes closed and just ask the Lord, who are you this morning? How do you respond to Jesus? Are you maybe like Judas? And your heart is hard. You needed to ask God to soften it. You need to ask God to take off the blindfolds and help you see him who he really is. Are you like the disciples and you want to do good things, but you haven't given him the best, which is your life, which is your heart, which is everything to him? Are you like, you, are you like Mary? You understand he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and you want to praise him. And you want to worship him with everything. And I pray that, God, you would take those people to a new level with you. God, that they would seek your face and they would press in deeper in knowing you, in surrendering to you, in worshiping you in a new way. Lord, I, I pray that you would speak to our hearts as we uh, close this morning. Lord, I pray that... Um, you would give us eyes to see you, who you really are. In all your glory, give us a glimpse of your glory again. That you are the King of kings and you are the Lord of lords and there is no one like you. And God, that as we see you with the eyes of our heart, Lord, that we would respond with an outpouring, an extravagant outpouring of worship. In Jesus' name. <laughs>